I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower, a weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Correct with Maximum Firepower. you and me this is tom morello's maximum firepower i'm tom morello and this is maximum firepower my guest today is antonino d'ambrosio a huge fan of two of my favorite artists of all time joe strummer and johnny cash he has written books on both we'll talk about that including let fury have the hour the punk rock politics of joe strummer antonino welcome to the show Great to be with you, Tom. Ciao, ciao. Great to be with uh, you. Ciao, so, ciao. So, so my, uh, I know I've shared the story with you before, but one day I was sitting around my house. <laughs> I got a call from Rick Rubin. He calls me up about a lot of bullshit a lot of times, but this time he called up <laughs> and he said, I'm in the studio right now with Joe Strummer and Johnny Cash, and we are recording Bob Marley's redemption song. Would you like to play guitar on it? And I looked at my schedule. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I took a good look at my afternoon schedule, said, I can make time for that, sir. <laughs> so, uh, so I went over there and, you know, and we were, you know, three of really three of my, yeah, certainly maybe three, my three favorite artists, you know, Bob Marley, Johnny Cash and Joe Strummer, certainly in the top yeah. five, all three of those. And it was a real honor to play in that song. And so, you know, our fanness of those people runs deep. So tell me about like your introduction. Let's start with Johnny Cash. So your introduction to Johnny Cash and the meaning of that artist to you as you, as a Johnny Cash expert, the meaning of that artist and what his fan base might be surprised at some of the corners of his art that might challenge some of his fan base. Yeah. So, you know, that it's a great question. I have to say, I first, my, my parents were immigrants from Italy. My father was a bricklayer and he, for some reason, loved country music. And I was really into punk music. And so I'd be driving in his dump truck and he'd be listening to country music and I couldn't wrap my mind around it back then. I was 11 years old and thought, what is, and he loved Johnny Cash. And the connection to, to Johnny Cash for me came through Joe Strummer through that record that you got to you had the good fortune to record oh, on. Wow, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So when I look when I heard that record, I spent time with Rick Rubin at his castle, and he talked to me about his the recording of that record and how Strummer and Cash connected. So I did a deep dive in that whole process about them working together and how they came up with their reimagining of Redemption Song. And it just set me on this journey. You know, I ended up writing the book about Joe Strummer and The Clash, Let Fury Have the, the Hour. And I went on a book tour all around the country. And part of the, the process of doing this book tour was that I get invited to do all these kind of cool events, sometimes appear with bands and, like, you know, even kind of perform with them and, and do a book reading, cool stuff. All so one of, the, one of the events was, or one of the, the, the cool invitations was, to go to Bowling Green University, which has the largest sound archive in the country. Anything that you want to listen to, original recordings and pressings of everything. And in that process, I wanted to check out one of Johnny Cash's records, Bitter Tears, Ballads of the American Indian, a record that he had run into censorship issues around. And in that record, when I pulled out the sleeve, a sheet of paper fell to the ground. And that sheet of paper was a letter that Johnny Cash had 
written to Billboard magazine protesting the censoring of the record. And it's a scathing indictment of the record industry, a scathing indictment of what was going on in America at the time. It was the buildup to the Vietnam War. It was all these things happening. And it set me on a journey. You know, I saw the whole book in my mind. But that process backed me into Johnny Cash and discovering all these things. And again, connecting him to Strummer, they had this, and I know this is an overused word, they had an authenticity and a realness to them. You probably saw when you were at the recording of that of that song where Strummer would sit in his car and they were writing lyrics on pizza yes. boxes and things yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, and Rick Rubin was telling me, like, I was just like, this is remarkable. Yeah. And he was like, taking pizza boxes and putting duct tape across them to make them longer when yeah. he was just writing lyrics. And one of the things about it was how much of a fan they were of each other. And when Johnny Cash was doing all those deaf, those, those, those American recordings with Rick Rubin, he would invite artists of all stripes to contribute songs. And Strummer wrote many songs for those recordings that Johnny mm -hmm. Cash never recorded. And in some ways, those two books are essentially part of a, you know, a trilogy, because I wrote a, a second volume of Let Fury Have the Hour, of this exploration of these people who had bigger ideas about the world. You know? So tell, tell me about the, the Johnny Cash song that was censored. What, what so, was it about yeah, the it was, song that people pushed back was, on? So it was, called, it was called The Ballad of Ira Hayes. The backstory here is what you'll appreciate is that Cash left Sun Records when he was wooed away by Columbia Records, specifically so he can record his experimental or avant-garde records, including folk records, concept records, which they blocked him from. But in 63, he had two massive hits, including... I walked a line and ring a fire and they couldn't block him any longer from making these records. And he'd already made a record called Grand Canyon, which is like a, like the first spoken word record. You know, it's just phenomenal and fascinating stuff. So this record was going to be a folk record and he considered himself a folk artist, you know, much like Joe Strummer again, who, who loved Woody Guthrie and called himself Woody, Woody for what, for a little mm -hmm. while, as you know. And, um, in the heart of this, the center of this record, the focal point of this record was a protest ballad called The Ballad of Ira Hayes, which was written by a little-known folk singer named Peter Lafarge, whose father, Oliver Lafarge, had been the head of the Bureau of, of the American Indian for decades. So he had a connection to the Native issue and the Native cause. Peter Lafarge is one of these characters in history who mentored Bob Dylan early on. He was the first folk singer signed to Columbia Records, but he, he wasn't really massively talented, let's just say that. But Johnny Cash loved him. So when Johnny Cash came to play in 1963, 62, I'm sorry, he came to play Carnegie Hall for the first time, and it was a disaster. You know, he was struggling with drugs. He couldn't, like, really get himself together on the stage. He was crawling around the stage. So he left the state, he left that night, he ended up down in the village and he hung out with Peter Lafarge. Peter Lafarge and him developed this relationship where Lafarge gave him a bunch of songs, including the Ballad of Ira Hayes. Ira Hayes is the Pima Indian who's holding the famous flag of Iwo Jima. So I have to say he was, he was a Marine, he was a paratrooper. And I think it was the first time they used paratroopers. And so he was an elite, elite military person in World War II. Came back. They paraded him around for this effort to raise war bonds, and he died drunk in a lonely ditch 
of like three inches of water. It's a really, so this is a whole story about Ira Hayes. Yeah. Which is an indictment of, of the treatment of native people in the United States. Right. So Cash makes the record. He left, went on a tour. It's where he famously played in Newport that summer, hung out with Dylan. It's the moment where Cash gives Dylan his guitar, where Dylan gives him, don't, you know, don't think twice, it's all right. You know, a couple of songs that he ends up recording famously. Mm -hmm. While this is happening, there's this groundswell of opposition to the record, and it's not being played anywhere. And Columbia is doing very little to promote it, a zero, essentially. So it's a soft censorship from Columbia. And Cash gets super pissed, finds out about it, goes to L.A., where his manager, he was living at the time, and his manager was at the time, buys the record back from Columbia, writes the letter, pays Billboard to put it in as an ad, a full-page ad, takes copies of the letter, puts them into the, the sleeve of the, of the album, and then goes from record station to record station himself and says, give this another chance. And then, you know, from there wow. is where the story is born for, yeah. for this book, wow. yeah, I should say. That's a, that's a, that's, it's an incredible story, and, and it does speak to another commonality of Johnny Cash and Joe Strummer, which is a contentious relationship with their record labels, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and that that's a, you know, we could talk about, I mean, why not? We're right here. But I mean, that is, it's certainly something that they had in common is, you know, when making art the way you want to, like, a, you know, famously, like with The Clash, that they wanted to sell a double record for the price of one record. They wanted to give That's the fans right. value. That they wanted to sell a triple record. for, And the record company's losing their minds. This is not a band that's selling enough. It's a band that has a cool factor that's through the roof, but they're not. The business of The Clash is not what it needs to be for making exactly. these demands, which are which are coming from the place. And I see this all the time. You see this in any sort of artistic industry, a lot in music and film, too. It's like... There's the right thing to do, and there's the thing that they want to do because it makes the most business sense or whatever. The right thing to do is the band has a fantastic, or Johnny Cash is a fantastic idea. Here's an inspirational story that means something very much to me, and me, and as an artist, I want to tell my truth to the world. That's exactly. the right thing to do. But then mm -hmm. that gets censored by the they don't because it's it is potentially objectionable to part of their so they try to squash it. With the Clash, it was like we just wanted to do all this. They wanted all the stuff that was. So, like, to go above and beyond than any other band had ever done for their fans to sort of give them value and let them know they're one, and the record company lost their mind or penalized them financially. So it's a that's a, that is definitely a connection there. I'll tell you one more yes. story about about Johnny. With so the first time, this is when Rick first started working with Johnny Cash, and I was over over at his house and we were listening to something and then between listening to something I hear they're mixing like Johnny Cash down there, so I hear Johnny Cash's voice in the sort of the studio in the basement. I'm like, dude, are you mixing Johnny Cash down there? And he's like, no, that's Johnny Cash. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> like, right, like, right now. Like, that's him. That's him singing right now? And he's like, yeah, that's him singing. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's so crazy. He's in the house. He's in the house. <laughs> I'm Tom Morello, and this is Maximum Firepower. My guest today is Antonino D'Ambrosio. So one thing I want to talk about is how how Joe Strummer and the you know and maybe Bernard Rhodes as well you could throw throw into this mix but how that right. band and particularly Joe Strummer helped to pull punk from this kind of like Nazi nihilism into sort of a radical left point of view because there was really you know in those big fledgling in the nest of punk rock there was 
you know, on the one hand, there was like sort of the American version, MC5, the uh, right. Ramones, that it was just weirdos. Like it's a place for yeah. weirdos to be weird, <laughs> and it's a safe place for weirdos. Iggy Pop, it's like you'd be weird. But when it came to England, there was a flirtation with right wing yes. icono iconography for sure and a nihilistic sort of point of view. It didn't, be, you know, the Sex Pistols and that sort of ethos was not one of we're all in it together for the people, no. you know, but no. it was Joe's, it was Joe as the ideological North star of the clash exactly. that kind of pulled the genre in that direction. So talk a little bit about that, if you would. Well, see, I think this is, a, this is, it is something you and I've talked about and talked about it in my film. We talk about even with Wayne and, and all of our crew, Chef, everyone we talk is that Strummer saw himself as a world citizen. And some of that came from his own background because Unlike most of the people in that scene, he, he wasn't working class or came from a poor background. He was more of a middle class kid. His father was a diplomat. But that gave him a sense of the world, which he took in a progressive way. And it created a bigger vision of what he could see himself doing. Mm -hmm. And his ideas were really a counter narrative to the dominant narrative of that scene. Like they would scrawl positive thinking on their boiler suits and things like that. As it's, instead of like, you know, no future, like the Sex Pistols were saying, right? Mm -hmm. But they they really believed it. And they really were kind of a, like the kind of lonely feather in the wind for a while there, you know? I, I remember that when I talked to Billy Bragg about this for a little while, you know, the jam even took a right-wing pose when when the when punk started fading into more like new wave and the jam, the jam and the class were like battling in England for a little yeah. while for the most... And uh, and they they were saying, vote for Thatcher, things like that, you know. And the cat, the, the clad, Shrummer called them out, you know, with you know they were you know wearing Burton suits. They think it's funny turning you know rebellion into money, right? Yeah. yeah. So as a band together, they worked really well. They all kind of contributed to this this worldview of world citizenship and what I call creative response, like using this opportunity to write songs that connected to everyday issues that you could find yourself in. So you and I coming from different places in the world found our way like through Plant Down, That's a song right. about like, you know, like we talked about this too, Tom, like this is, this is the song, maybe one of the most important rock songs ever made because it's just also a great rock song, but then it has this, all these other elements into it, which is a really nuanced discussion of, of, of class. Yeah, exactly. In England, but, you which, know, which you were not, which you were not getting, you know, you know, anywhere this side of Bruce Springsteen, exactly. and even with Bruce Springsteen, it was much more personal too. And the Clash were willing to right. get the nail on nail on the head. All right, a couple more things before we wrap up. But I wanted to, I want to talk about like sort of like the political development of the band. Like when you go from career opportunities to clampdown mm -hmm. to straight to hell. Like that's a, you know, those records were not made that far apart. But the evolving worldview of Joe Strummer as you know, as a poet and artist is, I think, pretty extraordinary. So talk a little bit about like that journey. You know, this is, it's interesting because, you know, I don't like to use these kind of like precious words like prophetic, but he, he really had his, again, because he, he was so deeply immersed in these things. He really believed that uh, as an artist, as a musician, as a, as a writer, as a citizen of the world that, you know, they, they had a responsibility to speak you know, to speak their kind of, you know, what we would say truth to power, but, you know, the, and, and to, you know, kind of give voice to, you know, one thing he told me, which is, you know, this is true, Tom, is if you feel this way, there's a good chance there's someone else feels this way. Yeah. 
And, you know, let's not forget London Calling, the, the, the record is a, is a warning for the impending nuclear war. Yeah. They saw what was going to happen with Thatcher and Reagan. They saw it was like, and they were like kind of prophetic in that regard. And they were proven right, sadly, about a lot of things. Obviously, there was not a nuclear war, but there was quite a, a lot of other things yeah. that happened. For him, he saw that as a great duty and responsibility that if he still had this platform, and yeah. this is something I talked to him a lot about, that he would, you know, continue to develop that in the most serious way possible, being a good songwriter, mm-hmm. you know, getting immersed in it, you know, and some of his Mescalero stuff, I think is quite extraordinary in terms of the things that he's talking about yeah. that really seem like are happening in 2021. Yeah. And this is 1997 and 1998. Same thing with London Calling, same thing, you know, I mean, look at Police on My Back is obviously a, a cover, but you know, that going back to the first record, you know, yeah. they have these, the issues are there. Exactly. And they were able to articulate them, you know? Yeah, it was, I mean, the connection is real though. Like you say, like, the, I think it's a, it's a great quote. Like if you feel this way, somebody else does too. Because I grew up in a very conservative suburb of Chicago where mm. nobody really, except maybe my mom, you know, like, like had the worldview that I did until I got the London Calling record. You know, and like every single person you met every single day thought, looked at the world differently than me and like and and looked at every story on the news in a different perspective and each, you know, war and body count and great boycott and, and union thing looked at it. Everybody with every teacher, every classmate, well, except for one or two exceptions, but like 99 percent of the people in my life looked at the world differently. Then I got London calling I'm like these guys are live a half a world away and then dug into exactly. the other records. I'm like, but we're the We have the same like heart. It's like, we, yes. like we have the same heart and it's like, yeah. And it made me like, like I'm not alone. And it made me think, well, if I'm I, one, I thought I was alone. Now I know that there's a band at least that thinks that way. And if that's, you know, that makes, five of us, you know, maybe there's, you know, maybe there's more, maybe there's a kid in the next town and maybe, and that was sort of like, was the impetus for, for, you know, writing songs of my own that were exactly. that were about what I cared about. And maybe there's somebody that's going to hear those and have that kind of connection. And it's that Johnny Appleseed thing that the clash were, and that every time th- that record was played in a basement or in a bedroom or in a, in a, concert hall that it left a mark and it made people think about the world in a different way than they had before. And that's quite a thing for a rock and roll band to do. And you know, the, the, the thing about this too, Tom, is that they were good. You could say all these things yes, yes, yes. that are important, but if you're not, if the, if the music is not good, it's the whole thing. They were, they were good. And they were also because they were just as serious and thoughtful and open-hearted about the music. They love roots music, especially Trummer, Trum, right? Americana, yeah, that's that's you, the, that's it has the to be. It, it cannot be. It cannot be overstated that nobody wants to mosh pit to a Noam Chomsky lecture. You know, no, ma- no, no, ma- no matter, no matter how insightful it is that you've got. The Clash also came out there in uniforms, like they had yeah. outfits and they shook their butts and they w- yeah. had some good-looking dudes in the back. Like they had a lot of the markers of rock and roll. I mean, that's why it was compelling for me. Like I, for me, the Cla- Joe Storm in particular in the clash that as someone who grew up on heavy metal music and who grew up on like rock pageantry, um, like there was an element that I could relate to in it. It's like they dressed up for a photo shoot. You know what I mean? Like they didn't just show up, you know, like some of the yeah. U S pump, whether it was the, the DC bands or the, or later the, the 
Southern California bands that just, you right, know, just, you right. know, like there was a show to be put on, but it was a show with an entirely different underpinning message to it. And that was the key. Exactly. Thing. They um, thought about everything. I mean, yeah. and you know, cash has that connection to that. Yeah. Cash is like that as well. Exactly. Exactly. Very much. Right? So. All right, so, so, so in, in conclusion, I want, and this is, this is, I want you to talk me out of this thesis because I, because it, it, it saddened me a little bit for, People of a certain age, the clash meant mm. everything, and it was like right. a, a hot meteor of of life changing power that came into came into all of our lives. Now, forty some years down the line, like there are some bands that have a you know this coming summer, Motley Crue are going to be playing stadiums with Poison and Def Leppard. They're going to be playing to eighty thousand. Wow. They're going to play to eighty thousand people a day in stadiums. Around. Wow. Yeah, and. <laughs> And I don't feel, I mean, I feel that the, that the story of The Clash and that the legend of The Clash and the meaning that it has for people who felt that heat firsthand will forever burn bright. But I don't know that it is translated sort of through the ages that that story has connected with younger people where it continues to be that kind of north star by which to set our compasses please tell me i'm wrong <laughs> i can I, I can tell you that you're starting to be wrong and yeah. i can tell you because from my own experience uh with the film that you're featured in left Fury have the hour and the two books and it may be because of one of these silver linings of the pandemic but the messages emails the, the amount of contact i get from the book, through the book, through the film, the streaming of the film, the book being read has been super heartening in that yeah. regard. Because as as I do with you, as, as the way you feel, I start to think, where's the next clash? Where's the next public enemy? Where's the next rage? But as Strummer would say, they're already here. They just need to be brought yeah. out into the light, yeah, right? They need to be amplified. And yeah, I've been yeah. heartened by that, that the creative response out of this terrible ordeal that you and I were just talking about before we started recording has led people to do what I think was being lost, man, which is like, go back into the record store bins and investigate. Cause you know, there are no record store bins really anymore. You know, yes, there's some, yeah, but you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, the yeah. library shelves are not many anymore. Yeah. You know, that's where the discoveries would happen. You know, you just, you know, you look for a band, whatever name you cream and, you see the clash next to him. Oh, exactly. let me check this out. Exactly. You know, exactly. so it's like, exactly. let me check that out. That's happening now through people kind of getting more in touch with their humanity, mm -hmm. which then they find the bands that that's what they were talking about. They yeah. were talking about the human spirit and being in solidarity with each other. You know, that's what inspiration is, right? You get your in spirit with each other. Yeah. So I've seen, I've seen some glimmers. So I'll say that. Well, I'm, I'm pleased. I'm, I'm, ple I'm pleased to hear that. Uh, like my kids who are 10 and 11 and it's like their listening experience is one that on the one hand, it's much more democratic because like water is more expensive than music now. You know right. what I mean? It's, right. it's, it's right. more expensive right. than music. And the bands that they like, you know, like my younger one, he likes sort of more bands. But the older one, he doesn't know the names of any of the artists of the songs that he likes. Because it's via sort of TikTok dances yes. or via edits right. and things like that. And so, like, the cultural sort of attachment to the traction that you could get with a band before, you can't get in that regard. You get yes. it with a 
TikTok dance or whatever. Like that's that's what's in your face and what you can identify with in a way that you don't have like the sort of catalog of artists. And it is constantly changing. And my hope is like when the world opens up more back to live concerts, we'll sort of see. And I think there's maybe a sort of a resetting of like who knows who we are post pandemic with regards to our tastes, our listening, and our sort of desires of what we want. Um, Anyone out there who is not, please check out Antonino D'Ambrosio's books on Johnny Cash, on Joe Strummer, the film. I'm in it. I'm in all that crap, so check it out. And uh, and uh, and if you are, if, if by some crazy chance you are unfamiliar with the work of uh, both Johnny Cash uh, and Joe Strummer, then boy, do you have a treat ahead of you. Is uh, you you can begin your begin your deep dive. Uh, but I'd like to thank you so much for being on Maximum Firepower, Antonino. It's uh, and for your pursuit of the truth in telling the stories of great artists like Johnny Cash and Joe Strummer. I appreciate you, Tom, and thank you for everything you're doing out there. Oh, I, I look forward to seeing you one day in yeah, person again. Yeah, I look forward again. to you in person, like, you know, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a backstage, you know, on stage, in a, in a bar, <laughs> on, the, on the Central Park, who knows? Uh, everybody out there, thank you very much for listening. This is uh, Tom Morello. You've been listening to Maximum Firepower. Until next time, take it easy, but take it. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again or listen to past shows right now on the SiriusXM app. Search Maximum Firepower.